You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcome back to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. I'm your host, Scott Lips. I'm excited to have our next guest on the show today. He's the frontman of the iconic 90s band that's still going strong today, 31 years later, and he is Art Alexakis of Everclear. He's an inspiration. He's a fighter. Everclear is a platinum-certified Portland-bred rock band who paved the way for many artists in the 90s alternative rock era. They've had a lengthy career, spanning 11 studio releases, sold over 6 million records, and they celebrated their 30th anniversary last year in 2022. Best known for their track Santa Monica off their 1995 Sparkling Fade, Everclear have made four albums that have been certified gold or platinum. They've had 12 top 40 hit singles and even snagged the Grammy nod. Everclear released its latest record this month, Live at the Whiskey Go-Go, which was recorded and filmed in late 2022 at the band's debut performance at the Fame Venue on their 30th anniversary tour. Everclear are currently making headway on their current North American run, which kicks off on September 7th and runs into 2024, and they're performing tonight on the day we record this here in New York City at the Gramercy Theater with support from the Pink Spiders and the Ataris. I've never met Art before. We definitely had some incredible connections. Coming up in just a moment, Art Alexakis from Everclear. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by the all-new DLZ Creator from Mackie. The DLZ Creator is an adaptive digital mixer designed for podcasting and streaming, and it's what I'm using right now to make this podcast. What makes it so special? DLZ's mix agent technology takes all the hard parts out of making your podcast. With three selectable user modes from easy to enhanced to professional, DLZ allows creators of any experience level to make content on their own terms. It is easy. It is amazing. If you are a podcast user, you need this thing right away in Podcast Creator. With features like Setup Assistant, Auto Mix, Mackie has taken 30 years of audio legacy and packed all their expertise into a podcasting mixer that is not only top of the line, but incredibly easy to use. I can attest to that. I'm using it right now. I love it. You can find out more about DLZ Creator at Mackie.com. Check it out. The DLZ Creator by Mackie. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Welcome back to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Welcome into the show, Art Alexakis from Everclear. Did I mess that up or did I a get a little bit? A little bit. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people mess that up, by I, the way. Man, as long as it's good on the check, I don't care. <laughs> what is the correct pronunciation, by the Alex way? Alex saw the band kiss. Alex Sakis. All right, we got it straight. We got it straight. I was actually, we were just talking off camera, by the way. Our mutual friend, Freddie, has been playing bass with you for 14 years. Yeah. Pretty weird connection. I used to play in this band, The Boogie Nights, with him years ago. We were talking about that. Crazy, by the way, you said you hired them at one of your weddings years ago. For one of my my many weddings, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It's funny. The Boogie Nights, for those of you who don't know, was this band. Everyone had a record deal, but nobody was making money. So we all formed this weird coalition of... Probably, I guess, 30 or 40 members. Some of them went on to become Steel Panther. Freddie obviously joined your band about 40 years ago. But I think we were charging at some point like 10 grand, like playing oh. disco, maybe more for a wedding. I don't remember. But I think he was making more. He was making a lot of money. Yeah. I, I know. He said that he was making money hand over fist. Which is great. And then he, he could do his creative stuff, you know? Yeah. That was the idea, right? And uh, now um, the guy who started that, the main guy, Jamie. Jamie. 
He's got bands all over the country. Yeah. And not just that, he's spasmatics, you yeah. know, all that stuff, 80s bands. Yeah. It's weird because I used to put on this John Travolta wig and do that dance from Saturday Night Fever, and I'm not a dancer, so it was very embarrassing, <laughs> but uh, I'm an okay drummer, but not a dancer. Anyway, it's so great to see you, by the way. You're playing tonight, and we were just talking about sleeping on the bus and touring and whatnot. Yeah. It is hard to sleep on the bus on the East Coast, I guess. On the East Coast, there's just so much traffic on the road, so they just... You, you can't fix it. it. It just gets beat up too bad. It is what it is. And I'll was, sleep when I'm dead. Yeah, I was mentioning that Pennsylvania. It feels like it goes on for like three days. Right? Yeah, pretty much it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, trying to go, try to go to like Philly to Pittsburgh. Yeah, <laughs> forever. Well, we have to talk. There's so much to get into. Obviously, your history, the new record live at the Whiskey that Matt Pinfield, our other mutual friend, announces right. at the beginning of the record. But 30 years now, 31 years of Everclear. Does it feel like a crazy milestone when you think about how long you've been a band and been able to make a great living doing this? I guess if I look back on it with that kind of perspective, but I'm really just kind of what whatever I'm a whatever is in front of me kind of guy. You know, I'm just like I don't really think about the past too much. I enjoy it. Like I get places and I, I remember different things in different times. You know, coming into New York, we've had some amazing shows or amazing experiences. And some really crazy psycho experiences too. That's what I want to know about, yeah, by the way. Well, the we, can talk, we can talk about a few of those. <laughs> but um, you know, I'm just I'm just grateful to still be doing it. I'm 61. I've been clean and sober 34 years. I got diagnosed with MS about um, multiple sclerosis about seven years ago, and I'm still playing. Still, you're a fighter, which is what I love about yeah. you, by the way, and, and so many great stories and, and a great history and career. But let's talk about for a moment, let's kind of take it back, Art, to the beginning. Your upbringing was tumultuous, to say the least, but talk to me about your upbringing and, and kind of how you first got the bug to play music early on. Well, you know, um, my family, it's funny, I just did a radio show with a legendary guy who originally was from Detroit, and my family, all my siblings were from Detroit. Um, they were all born and raised there in Greektown. My dad's Greek. My mom was a hillbilly. So I'm half Greek, half hillbilly. And uh, my mom was working. It was New Year's Day, 1959. My mom was working at Stouffer's, uh, a big uh, department store in their in their restaurant. And they brought in a colored TV that no one had ever seen before, colored TV. Brought it into the, the break room. And it was 40 below and just miserable outside Detroit, you know, in January. And uh, she saw people twirling batons, wearing bathing suits in the sunshine in California. And she goes, we're going there. Nine months later, we're out there. A year and a half later, they had me. Wow, incredible story. And tell me a little bit about your upbringing. I mean, were you, was your mom and dad into music? What was your first experience kind of getting into music early on? That's a good question. You know, me growing up in the um, early, mid, late 60s, my, you know, every, a lot of music in the house. My mom... Hillbilly, love country music, old school country music. Um, my dad was into more of the crooners like Perry Como and, and especially Sinatra. And then my sisters, my eldest sister was into um, Motown. My brother was into hard rock and, you know, and my middle sister was into more like Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, that kind of stuff. And then my youngest sister was into pop what they call bubblegum radio. Mm. And I loved everything. I loved it all. I don't think there's bad music. There's two kinds of music. Music I like, music I don't. 
When you learned to play guitar like 14 or 15? 14, yeah. 14. And early at that point, was it like, were bands like the tubes happening for you? What was the music that kind of really got you into playing guitar at that point? Oh, Aerosmith, uh, Black Sabbath, um, the Beatles, you know. I mean, when I was four years old, my, so that would be 1965, 66, three and a half to four years old, I remember coming out and seeing the Beatles on TV. The last, not the first time they were on Ed Sullivan, but the last time. And I just, I, I'd never seen anything like that. And I never wanted to do anything else I feel from, like, that, from that moment. I feel like so many people saw that pivotal moment and decided that was music. That was that. it? Yeah. And at some point you got into punk. We can't uh, yeah. not talk about that. Bands like X and a lot of the early punk bands X from LA. is one of my favorite bands. Mine for sure. too, for sure. So talk to me about that. Because you can obviously hear a lot of the punk influences in some of your earlier stuff. Heroin Girl, a lot of the, the earlier songs. Well, like I said, I, I grew up with like album-oriented rock and roll, more, you know, like classic, what we call classic rock now. And um, I was living in Houston when I was 15 going on 16. And I met a kid there that was um, really into punk rock. And I had, you know, I had read about in Circus Magazine and Cream, I'd, I'd read about the Ramones and, you know, all the bands, all the English bands. And um, finally I got to hear them. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. But I refused to cut my hair. I had long <laughs> hair. So I'd go to punk rock shows with long hair and i get in fights constantly. Because it was like now it's like, you like metal, you like punk, who cares? Back then it was one or the other, yeah. man. You couldn't have them both. And you were just getting the fights for having long hair. That yeah, was it. pretty much. It's safe to say that it was sort of a troubled youth for you, right? Talk yeah. to me about that growing up and sort of the hardships growing up for you. Well, my parents um, split up when I was about five and a half, six. And my dad moved to Florida, which at that time, there was only two states in the United States that you couldn't um, go after people for uh, child support, Florida and Texas. And when Florida changed their laws, incidentally, five, six years later, he moved to Texas. So that's my dad. But my mom ended up moving to a housing project in Culver City, which is um, about 10 miles from Santa Monica. And um, near Marina Del Rey, too. Marina, yeah. So yeah, I right. went to Marina Del Rey High School, yeah. junior high school, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, and it was rough. I got into a lot of fights, I got beaten up a lot. But after about a year of, of assimilating, I had great friends that I still have to this day. And I was, I was, um, you know. I was exposed to all sorts of music and culture, and it was cool. One of the bad things that happened there um, was I, uh, my, there was this one family of boys um, that were a bit older that my mom said I was not to go into their house. And one day in the summertime, I went in their house, and they had some older boys over a young, one guy who was in his 20s, and I got beaten and raped. Wow. By him. Obviously. Boys who had been beaten and raped themselves, yeah, probably, yeah, you know, hurt, hurt people, hurt people. So, I had that. Never told my mom about that because my mom kept a thirty-eight under her mattress. She would have killed them for sure. So, I, um, I grew up with that. My brother died of an overdose when I was when I was twelve. He was twenty-one, and uh, instead of going away from the drugs, I ran to it, mm. and. Um, I've been clean and sober now, but I was a street junkie dealer, carried a gun, um, uh, blackout drunk, you know, 
There's even stories of you breaking into people's houses to go through their medicine cabinets in yeah. middle school, right? Uh, that was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, wow. You did your work, man. Yeah. Yeah. I was about, that was eighth grade. So, t- 13. so what would you do? You would just go to your friends' houses? Their no. parents would be out of town no. and you would raid them? Like we would ditch school. A bunch of us kids would get on our dirt, our, our, our motocross bikes, right? And we'd just drive around neighborhoods and we'd look for houses that looked nice but didn't have any cars in the driveway. And we'd go in the backyard. And back then in the 70s, people would leave their doors open. Or I would crawl through a dog door, which is really stupid because <laughs> if I could, I was really skinny, right? I was the skinny one. I was kind of the protagonist, but I was also kind of small. And, um, yeah, I, we would go in and rip off money, drugs, food. There was no ring cameras back then. It was just no. uh, free-for-all. People would leave their doors open. Yeah, people would leave their doors open. Yeah. Did Even you ever go into one of those dog doors and encounter a German Shepherd or something? Or or no, I don't know if I'd be here if I did, or my <laughs> yeah. face would look a little different. Yeah, no, man. One time I, I remember I went through the doggy door and there was an envelope on the, on the table and it said, Jimmy's insurance money, and there was $1,400. Now, you got to get this in context. This is 1975, $1,400. Minimum wage at the time was $1.99. That was like ten grand back then or oh, something. Oh, God, no, it was more. More, 20. Yeah, 15 grand, something like that. And we just took all that money and bought drugs and went to Shakey's Pizza and... <laughs> <laughs> it's a and lot of but, pizza. But the cops, well... <laughs> We did a lot of stuff with it, but um, we uh, I got busted um, somewhere down the line because a kid told on it, and uh, I went to juvie for the first time, and then I got out after about a couple of weeks, and they let my mom send me up to Oregon, and that started me, her shipping me away, me coming back, getting into trouble, her shipping me away, um, and uh, when I went to te- Texas at one time, she sent me to my dad. She didn't even tell him I was coming. Till I was on the plane. She goes, he's yours now. Go. And what was that like? You Because you and Weird. your dad had this strange relationship. I didn't know relation. him. Yeah. I didn't know him. He yeah. showed up for my brother's funeral, and I didn't know this guy. Mm. I hadn't seen him since almost 10 years. I'd seen him once in 10 years. So it was bizarre. And, you know, my dad passed, incidentally, about uh, about six, six, seven years ago. He died three days before David Bowie did. Mm. And... I was sad, but not really that broken up about it because I really didn't know him. Yeah, I wasn't mad at him. I'm not mad at him anymore. I, I didn't hold on to that. But I I was hurt more by David Bowie, and I didn't know David. I mean, I met him one time at a show, and he was very polite and very nice to me like he is. But I didn't know him, but just his music. He touched and his, everyone, yeah. Yeah, boy, absolutely. How could it not? He made it, made it n- n- not bad or made it okay to be weird and be mm. different, be a mm. freak and be yourself, right? And so that's it. That was that. But, um, did your father start coming around at a certain point when you had success, like a lot of these dads do when their sons are famous? Was he like, by the way, now I'm back and you're like, well, talk about father of mine at a certain point? Because, well, he called, you know, he, he he called, he reached out through my sisters. I, I really didn't have much to do with them. Like, you um, don't hear from him for 20 years and then all of a sudden, yeah, there was, pops a, up. there was a little bit of that. He's like, I heard you wrote a song about me, son. I hope you did me proud. I go, well, dad, I was <laughs> you honest. I want to listen to well, it. Well, dad, I was honest. You should hear it. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, one of my sisters, and I didn't get along very well with my sisters. As they grew up, they became super right wing, mm-hmm. right? Born again, just 
these days they would be QAnon, MAGA. And, uh, but someone asked my sister um, if I was exaggerating about my dad. And she goes, Arthur was being nice. Yeah. I was being kind. Yeah. Cause it was, she had even worse experience with him and, Super unfortunate, but also the source of some incredible material and great songs. But I want to talk about one other thing which kind of caused you to get sober, it's a uh, near-fatal overdose, It was right? an overdose. Yeah. Well, that, was, that happened several times. But uh, And was that the, the pivotal point for you when you decided to get clean and sober? No, not really. I, I mean, I backed off it for about a month, and then I started back up again. Um, and then I ended up in detox, and um, I uh, and, and had super bad... After, after stopping doing the drugs, after not doing the drugs for about a month, my body freaked out because mm -hmm. I've been drinking and doing drugs since I was nine, yeah. eight, nine. I used to work, go to friends' houses when they'd have parties and we'd like, you know, drink the remnants of drinks. And I, I was constantly going to friends' house and stealing a little bit of alcohol. I'd learned how to steal the vodka even though I didn't like vodka. Uh, that much, but put water in the bottle, you know. Yeah, of course. Those kind well, of we did back then. Yeah, everybody did that. Yeah. But I was doing it at 8 and 9, and uh, 10, 11, that's, 11, I started doing acid. 12, 13, 13, I started shooting speed, uh, and uh, just went from there. What's yeah. crazy is that all this happened pre you making it in Everclear, because yeah. you really didn't, Everclear didn't form until you were like 30 or 31. I was clean. Yeah. I was clean. So all this so happened pre-Everclear. Yeah. Which is I, usually it happens in the reverse order, so. I know. Yeah. But th th that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened for me. Mm. I, would, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have had success. If that I wouldn't was have been able on. to, yeah. Yeah. Because when I got clean and sober, it, it gave me the drive I hadn't had for a long time. So let's talk about that for a minute. Like 87, 88, the height of hair metal. You move to Frisco and get into the cowpunk movement there, which, to be honest with you, I, we'd have to talk about that for a minute because I'm not quite sure some of the bigger bands in that movement up there. I was going up there a bunch, and we were playing at, I don't know, I think there was uh, Slims maybe? was there a, Slims. And there was a bunch of clubs we were playing up there. Slims but just closed. Did it really? Yeah. But in 87, 88, it was up in San Francisco. It was Vane. It was a lot of these bands from San Francisco. So the, the height of the hair metal stuff was going to was Motley. It was Rad Poison, whatever it may be. And you were going in the opposite direction, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things is, for, um, and people get this as a misnomer, um, cowpunk was an L.A. thing. Mm. That was 83, 84, 85. So there's bands like Blood on the Saddle, uh, Guns and... Um, um, Texting the horse heads. Well, broken uh, homes. The gun club. Was broken homes considered no, more. Not really. More stonesy, I guess. Right. More yeah. stonesy. Yeah. More stonesy. But it had that roots thing. It all emanated from like you know X, yeah. who you're a of fan course. of as well. Um, th their country kind of roots, you know, as the, as they progressed, that really came to the forefront. So I think a lot of bands were inspired by that. But when I moved to, um, I moved up in '88 to San Francisco, mainly because you couldn't get a gig in L.A. unless you were a butt rock. Right. You know? It was pay to play. It was pay to play. Everyone. It's fun. For people that don't know, 87, 88, 89 on the Sunset Strip, there was probably 5,000 people every weekend on the Strip passing out flyers. Yeah. Everyone looked, you know, everyone was... And with big, big, <laughs> big hair. Big hair. Guys had better hair than the <laughs> right. girls, for so sure. If you didn't look like that and you weren't in that type of band, I mean, like we spoke about, there were other bands. There was this alternate scene of Jane's Addiction and X... 
and a lot of those Tets and the Horseheads yeah. and a lot of those bands. But yeah, you're right. I mean, most of the bands that were sort of mainstream at that point were doing the hair metal thing. Yeah. So so you move up to San Francisco. It's your second band uh, and Easy Hose. And you make a record, you make an EP, and you decide... Make a record. Make a record. Make and a record. And uh, I started a record label. A guy, I was working in an office, and one of the guys that worked there uh, came to see me play. And he's like, man, I get it. You're a really talented guitar player and singer, and, and it makes sense now. I go, what makes sense? He goes, why you're so bad at your job? <laughs> because you don't care about it. He goes, and he, he fronted me some money, and I started a little record label called Shindig Records. And uh, at that time in San Francisco, there was this great alternative country scene. So it wasn't like cowpunk. It wasn't like noisy and punkish. It was more... Um, New Wave-ish with, with like a country feel. and um, Who were some of the bands back then um, in Frisco? That the, were? Wanna, the Wannabe Texans, um, uh, Jerry Shelfer. Um, there was, let's see, some of the bigger bands were uh, uh, Buck Naked and the Bare Bottom Boys. Okay, sure. Um, you know, bands like that. And I went in and produced a song from all of them and did a compilation called Lazy Loud and Liquored Up because I was still drinking <laughs> at the time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a great album. If you can find it. And I actually just found the master tapes for all that stuff. So I'm, I plan on putting a, a reissue out. Amazing. Be great on vinyl. Yeah, talk to me about the point from there into how you met what came to be Everclear. Because you at a certain point you moved to Portland. And uh, you still, you know, you did A&R at, at Capitol too in between all that. Yeah, that was way, that way was after that. Way, way in the future. So um, after the Easy Hose broke up, because we had a girl bass player and the two guitar players were seeing the big girl bass player. That's <laughs> what happens. That's what was going on back then, I guess, uh, right? Well, <laughs> it happens just about every band I've ever seen. Anyways, um, I started a band called Colorfinger. Stupid name, good band. Um, less country-ish, more rock, you know, more of what would come to be called alternative rock. And uh, I toured on that a lot we we put out a record our own record called deep in the heart of the beast in the sun and uh i met a girl in in portland at a record store and uh she moved down you know after a couple of months of long distance she moved down and lived with me in san francisco and then we um uh and by the way i was still married to my first wife we were separated and uh then she got pregnant and we moved back to Portland. We moved to Portland for the first time because uh, I had, I we, she had family there for support with the kid, and I had family there. One of my sisters lived in Portland. So I moved to Portland, and I decided I was going to start one more band, and that was going to be it. I was 30, which in the rock. It was almost ancient, old. Yeah. Ancient, <laughs> yeah. just ancient. Yeah. And uh, I put an ad in the paper and got some guys and, weren't very good. We played all summer. My daughter was born in June, played all summer and fall. And then I got a chance to record a demo. I was digging a ditch for extra money or digging out a garden for extra money. I saw these guys going, hipster guys going in and out of a garage um, or a basement. And I'm like, oh, it's a drug deal, right? That's a drug deal. <laughs> and it was actually, I, I yelled at the guy. I go, hey, what's going on? He goes, yeah, you're in that band Evergreen, right? And I go, yeah, whatever. Yeah, Evergreen. And uh, he goes, want to see my studio? And I'm like, it's pretty cool. It's a quarter-inch eight-track. He had some cool mics. 
and you know, total eggshells on yeah. the walls type of thing. I'm like, how much you charge? He goes, ten bucks an hour. I go, I've got a an old quadriverb and a, a digital delay. Um, would you be interested in trading for it? And he goes, yeah, man. I brought it over. He goes, I'll give you $400 in trade for it. That's 40 hours. We had 12 songs. I go, that's all you need. Awesome. We recorded it. And I, I, one of the reasons I did it is because I wanted to see if there was something to the, that band, whether there was something there. You need to hear it, you yeah. know. And it were, obviously was. And I sent it to South by Southwest and they accepted us. They called us. They're like late entry, put us on two showcases. And uh, before we left town, I made up a bunch of tapes and I sent them to venues and writers and papers all over the Northwest. And Sort of self-managing the band at that point. Yeah, right? pretty much, yeah. yeah. And on the way back, I called my girlfriend, soon to be my second wife. She's like, man, you better get home. There's 62 messages on our <laughs> on our phone machine. This is before voicemail. This right. is a phone machine. Yeah. And, and yeah, people were going crazy for it. They were calling it um, the best Portland debut record. And I'm like, record? Okay, I guess it's a record. You know, so, yeah. And that's how it started. And we spent 93 as, like, the big local band opening for Nationals. And then in 94, we... Uh, we got a bunch of offers. Um, it was turning into a bidding war, and I basically um, narrowed it down by saying, you know, I want total creative control, and I produce my own records. And that left us with about seven labels, and we picked Capital. By the and, way, fairly bold for back then. You said to the labels, unless I can produce the records myself, there's no deal. I'll just right? stay on the indie. Yeah, <laughs> it, was like, it was like they're like, okay, I'm like, I want this much money. Right. They're like, that's reasonable. This many firm records. I want uh, three quarters mechanicals. Turns, you know, at this increment goes to this and this and this. And everyone was like, yeah, that's all reasonable. I go, oh, yeah, by the way, total creative control <laughs> on everything. You cannot do anything without my signa signature on it. And I produced my own records. No one was doing yeah. that. And I'm not going to send you any demos on top no of it. No demos. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I've never, never done a demo in my life. You end up working with Gary Gersh, who signed Nirvana, Sonic Youth, yeah. The Counting Crows. What was that like? How'd you meet him? What well, was that he, first meeting like, by the way? Um, I got gershed, you know? <laughs> right. I, I think I came up with that term. I got gershed. <laughs> um, I actually went to Capitol because of um, this guy, Perry Watts Russell. Who, sure. Uh, do you know Perry? British. Yeah, yeah British. Yeah, yeah. Very stoic, dude. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, just great guy, a great friend of mine, even to this day. He's a real estate mogul now. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he was always trying to get me into real estate in the day, and I didn't <laughs> listen to him. Stupid me. Um, but, uh, yeah, and after I was with Perry, I went up and met Gary, and Gary's like, you know, Gary didn't even know what we sounded like. He's like, you guys are great. I love everything. you got to be here. I'm this is hurt you, but you're great. Yeah, yeah, he didn't say that. <laughs> you know, that was Gersh. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh yeah, we signed with Capital and uh, went and made our record in um, Madison, Wisconsin at Smart Studios. And, um, you know, the first single didn't do so well, A Heroin Girl. And um, the second single did. It's called Santa Monica. We were just uh, reminiscing about our buddy, our mutual friend, Matt Pimfield. I feel like yeah. Matt was probably one of the first people I would imagine on 120 minutes to play some of the music, right? Or he definitely was a fan early on, well, championing I, the band. I met Matt in late 93.
three when we were on tour when he was working in Neptune. All right. In Neptune, New Jersey yeah. as a PD. Yeah, yeah. At the radio he, station. He tells me about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. He still had he still had a little <laughs> yeah. hair hair around around the side. It's kind of the Don Rickles thing. Yeah. 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 And uh so we've been friends ever since then. And you know, and um we we had a lot of things in common. Recovery, um, just you know, coming from our backgrounds. Even though he was East Coast, I was West Coast. We've always been really, really good friends. Yeah, was there a lot of pressure? Like, think back to 94. I think you said you were making something like $1,500 that year before you got the deal. Then all of a sudden it was something like $84,000. And was there a lot of pressure building up to that first record, Sparkle and Fade, which, you know, as you mentioned, the second single really took off for you. But did you feel after making so little money for so many years and never really having success to produce this massive record early on? No, I just wanted to make the best record I could make. I'd never had a budget before. Yeah. I'd never been able to work with people like that and like real stone cold mixers, you know, that worked in real studios. I'd never had that kind of experience. I've never worked on anything over 16 track. Mm. Um, so it was exciting to be able to go in there and do it. And every subsequent record after that, I just, I did the same thing. I would hire good people to work with, but... I'd be there for every note recorded. Imagine if we had the technology today back then, because you were dealing with eight tracks early on. You couldn't even separate the drums. There was like bleed through with the drums, and you were putting drums on the same track as you know the mic or whatever. Well, not the drums. We we, we gave four of the eight tracks to drums. Yeah, bass was five, guitar was six, vocals were lead vocal was seven. So if we either had to have a lead guitar. Or of harmony vocal. You had to choose. Yeah. <laughs> and if we had the technology today that we had back then, do you think you would have been making different records? Probably. Yeah. Probably. It's much easier and cheaper to make a record now. Yeah, no question. It's much easier and cheaper to make a movie now, you know, with digital. The digital cameras look amazing. Yeah. So it's a different world, but for the time that we were in, I was happy with what we what we were able to do. And like every band back then, we were all influenced by Nirvana, whether you say you were or not. Maybe not the music, but definitely by the model of them doing a record for 600 bucks and just making a great record. You know, and the songwriting, which was incredible back which then. Which was incredible. Yeah. Talk about a couple of pivotal moments for the band. We were just talking about your father, Father of Mine, such an important song for the history of Everclear. Tell me the story behind it. You touched base on your father and your relationship with him. But talk to me about really what it meant back then and, and the story behind that song, which became one of your biggest songs. Yeah. Um, well, so after the success of our first record on uh, Sparkle and Fade on Capitol, um, I bought a big house up in the West Hills and proceeded to make our next record, which was going to, at the time, was called Pure White Evil, and ultimately it was going to be called uh, So Much for the Afterglow. But I remember one night putting my daughter at the time to bed. She was like four or five, and maybe five or six, and something that parents do, especially parents that don't have a lot of money, you watch your kids sleep. You just watch him sleep. It's just special mm. to watch him sleep. And I remember looking at her and just going, how do you walk away from that? How do you do that? Something that special, something that connected, someone who loves you that much, how do you walk away from that? I didn't understand it. And I went to my uh, 
I I had one of the bedrooms like a office and kind of study. I had guitars and stuff in there, and I just stayed up all night and wrote that song. It's fairly therapeutic for you, I would imagine. It was right? catharsis for yeah. sure. Because yeah. your mom really raised you, more or less, right? Yeah, my yeah. mom raised me. And she was crazy hillbilly, but she loved me fiercely from the moment I was born to the moment she died. And we were just talking about your dad, and your dad did sort of pop up. after. Did, do you remember his reaction to the song when you finally listened to the lyrics? Yeah, he ghosted me. I didn't hear, I didn't hear about it. <laughs> Uh, typical, I would imagine, because yeah. you were just being honest and really vulnerable. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people really connected with your vulnerability in a lot of those songs. And, and even to this day, I'm sure there's people that come up to you all the time and say, you know, your music got me through such a hard time. I'm clean and sober, whatever it may be. My parents, I had some issues. So talk, any, any amazing stories that you can remember of people coming up to getting your music, getting them through those hard times? I, I literally hear it every day. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that people come up to me and and uh, we'll talk about it later. But I have a new song called "Sing Away" that's about suicide and teen bullying, and that's really touching a nerve as well right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, I like to write songs from the first person, and I like to write songs about things that matter yeah. to me. Speaking of which, wonderful. I think a lot of people don't really know what that's about, but ultimately, it's it's a it's a very happy song about divorce <laughs> and and the eyes of a child through the eyes of a child, right? Yeah. So probably people listen to it and lyrically, if they don't really delve into it, they probably think on the outside it's this shiny bright song, but ultimately, it really is about what a child is going through through divorce. So talking about a, another highlight of yours. Well, wonderful. being being a child of divorce and uh, um, watching my daughter go through. Um, divorce with her mom um was one of the hardest things i ever did and and a lot of guilt and shame because i knew i was pretty much responsible for it she wasn't innocent but not compared to me i mean i i basically was clean and sober and i wasn't using but i was i wasn't going to meetings i wasn't working a program and so i was what we call in the program dry drunk off and on for many years, especially during all the success. And I was using sex and relationships and and power and control and all that stuff as a substitute for drugs and alcohol. Mm. And um, so when I when I saw how much pain I had created in my daughter, I, I wrote that song, not just about her, but about me and about uh, friends of mine who were going through similar things. And it was just looking at divorce, like you said, from the kid's point of view. Yeah. yeah. When your daughter listens to that song now, because I know you're a family man and I know you're very close with your kids, what does she think? Does she look at that song as sort of like a template to how she grew up? And We don't talk about it. You don't talk about it, right? She doesn't talk about it. Yeah. Is she a fan of the band? I assume she is. Right? I assume so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. so, so. She's, a fan of, she's a fan of me paying for her college. <laughs> right. Another song, another pivotal moment, I Will Buy You a New Life. Yes. So let's talk about it a little bit. It's about dreaming about a better life. And uh, you were just kind of rolling around and driving through West Hills at some point, looking at the houses, thinking at some point I'd love to live here, right, and admiring all the houses there. Talk to me about the story behind that song. So when I was living... Before we got signed to Capitol, I'd be about about six, eight months before. We were living, me and my daughter and her mom, we're living in a part of Portland called Felony Flats. Mm. Great place to go if you want to buy crack <laughs> right. or, or speed or dope or whatever. It was pretty, not, not a great neighborhood. But we would uh, get in my beat-up Nissan Sentra 
that didn't even have a lock on the back or a broken windshield and all this stuff. And we would get a Happy Meal for my daughter, pretty trashy, and drive up to where all these beautiful houses are, million-dollar houses. And we'd park and we'd just, like, look in that house and and she'd like this house, but I like this yard over here. And we just fantasize about it. And two years after doing that, we actually bought a house up in the West Hills. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I guess if you manifest it, there is some truth that it can happen. Yeah, sure. I guess so. <laughs> I, I think so much of that is is, is wishful thinking, you yeah. know, the whole vision board and all that stuff. But yeah, but it hurt. did happen for you, so it, there is some truth to that, I guess, if you work hard and, and you're talented for sure. But let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, you touched base on it before, but 2019, you get this diagnosis for MS. And 2016. 2016, I'm sorry. And uh, let's talk about what it, you know, kind of like today where you're at with it and obviously what it meant back then when you found out and how it affected you. Um, I saw you wearing this great shirt that said, uh, I'm not drunk, I have MS or something, and yeah. something to that effect. Well, so in 2016, I was driving up to my daughter's school, and it was raining. And you know, in L.A., people have no idea how to drive in the rain. Exactly. They the lose worst. their minds. Yeah. And, and there's so much oil on the road, and, and uh, my brakes just went all the way. New, new car, too. Yeah. Just went all the way to the ground, and I plowed in the back of a car. No one was hurt. Um, car was totaled. I, I was okay, kind of shooken up, a little bruised. Um, but about two weeks later, I started getting this twinge in my neck. And I called my orthopedic surgeon. He's like, well, go get an MRI. I'll set you up for an MRI and come in. I'll find out where it is, and I'll, I'll put an epidural shot and just loosen up. It'll be fine. And so I went and got an MRI, and I went to his uh, little examination room like I always do. And I walk in. There's, like, five guys in there in, like, coats with clipboards, and I walk in, they're all talking, and when I walk in, they all just stopped and looked at me like that, and I'm like, this isn't good. I don't know yeah, what this that, is. That could never be good. This is not good. Yeah. And they told me that the pathologist that had done the MRI had seen lesions on my spine and, um, and uh, on my brain as well, and two of the guys that were in the room were neurologists, and they showed it, the MRI to me on the screen and said, this is MS. And uh, have you suffered from these these things, balance issues, this and this, like weakness on one side? And I'm like, yeah, I have. I thought it was just me getting older mm. and just... The normal things the, that happen to you. Yeah, right? I'd done a lot of drugs and yeah. a lot of stuff. I, I just figured it was, you know, glorious results of a misspent youth, you yeah. know. I was willing to live with it. But... Um, they thought that, or they're, they're part of my diagnosis. I went to two neurologists after that, and they told me that they thought I'd had over 20 years, maybe even 40 wow. years. Crazy. Yeah. But, um, because it's harder to get out of bed when you get older. It's harder to remember things. Like everything goes to well, shit a little bit. Well, but, everything goes to shit a yeah. little bit. But, I mean, this is like having an extra 10, 15 years on yeah, you yeah. at any time. But um, when I when they told me, you know, I kept it together. I walked out to the parking lot, and I FaceTimed my wife, and I told her, and we both just started bawling, mm. just started crying. Because scary, man. I didn't know what the hell multiple sclerosis was. I'd never met anybody that had it. Actually, I found out later I met a lot of people that had it, yeah. but they hadn't told anybody. 
And But at the time, I drove home. I was about 40 minutes away from my house. By the time I get home, my wife's got her laptop, my laptop, our daughter's uh, iPad. It looks like she's trying to hack into Fort Knox or something. Just and researching. She's just researching. Yeah. And she's like, baby, we got this. We got this. And, um, yeah, and we've just... You know, I was doing really good with the first medication they gave me uh, until I caught COVID in 2021. And uh, I was in the hospital for about three and a half weeks. And then I was in bed for another month with really bad pneumonia. And uh, I would imagine you really assess your life at that point and it makes you think of things a lot differently, right? Well, no, it progressed it. It gave Mm. me more lesions. Mm. So walking is harder for me now. Um, everything's harder. Fatigue's harder for me now. I'm on a good medication. I've got a good diet. Um, but you know, it's things that used to come easy for me are harder now physically. When you're performing, do you forget the lyrics here and there or things like that happen or not so much? Nah, a little bit, but I've always done that. I've done that my whole life. I'm just not that smart. Before that, that happens. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think it, I don't think cognitively, um, it's, affected me that much because this you're now what like seven years into knowing you had at this point right Right. yeah so do you do you approach life a little bit differently or sure you do yeah yeah living every day every day to the fullest for sure well let's talk about we touch base on a little bit but 30 years now it's 31 years of everclear so again i kind of asked you like what does it mean to you at this point because you probably didn't think years ago after making it at like 31 that you'd be sitting here 30 years later still having this incredible career or or did you just think this is going to go on for five records and we'll be done yeah, I've had four records. Yeah, you know, I really, there's interviews of me. Um, I saw some when you're you like, know, where I'm like, I think most records. bands should hang it up after four or five <laughs> right. records. <laughs> well, but, you're cocky when you're younger. But everybody then, said that. Yeah. Mick Jagger said yeah. that because yeah. I'm not going to be 40 years old singing Satisfaction. Yeah. Well, he's 80 singing Satisfaction. 50 years later with yeah. Mick Jagger. Yeah. Wow. Well, so yeah. you know, I mean, really, what it comes down to is, what are we going to do? What are musicians going to do? This yeah. is what I do. Yeah. Of course I'm going to do it. Mm. I'm going to do it till I, they don't, no one wants to buy tickets anymore <laughs> because I have to. That's what I do. And it's also what you love doing. Yeah, but it's what I love to do, but it's also... Oh, you know. Yeah, I, I, not only that, it's not because it's not just for the money. It's just it's what, who I am. Mm. That's, I've been a musician my whole life. You recently oh, went okay. back to school too, didn't you? Get I did. I'm, yeah. I'm still. I'm still working on. I'm about a year away from getting my degree. I promised my mom I would get my degree, but I I did a, a life coaching courses and stuff, and I'm about three, about six months away from getting alcohol drug certification to work with people in recovery as well. Amazing. Yeah. I know Matt does a lot of work with people in recovery he too. Does. He's got his own podcast for that yeah. specifically. I was on it. Yeah. Ah, amazing. Well, let's talk about a couple other career highlights working with Baz Luhrmann, who's become such a force in pop culture years later, you know, 96, I think Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Yeah. So how did that come about for you? Was it just an email that you got? Did you meet Baz? I did meet Baz, but he, uh, we were really, we were really successful in Australia, mm. like if we sold, uh, if we were platinum here, we were double or triple platinum there. Um, you know, not as many records, but per capita, more records. And um, he asked us to be a part of it, much to the chagrin of his music director, Nelly, who didn't want us on the label. Oh, right. He didn't want a rock band. Is that Nelly Hooper? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, he didn't want okay. us on it. Yeah. And uh, he didn't like the song, and, <laughs> and um, 
but uh, you know, still got on there. But no, no, no. Baz loved the song. Yeah, Baz loved the song, and uh, we put it on the record. And what's funny, and you've been in the business long enough to know how it works. So they put that record out. It was on Capitol, mm-hmm. right? So we negotiated a really good deal. I made more money on that record than I did on Sparkle and Fade. Amazing. Like a lot more money. And But it wasn't a hit. It wasn't going to be a hit. It was the second song on the record. And then when we played Australia, after that record came out and we were down in Australia, the head of Australia EMI was like, hey, man, where's the uh, where's local God on the set list? I go, we're not doing that. <laughs> It's it's a soundtrack. Soundtrack. He goes, yeah, you are doing it. And he goes, it's number one at three different formats Amazing. down here. So, yeah, so we had to learn to do it. I always talk about that movie, Searching for Sugarman, where people go to countries and they don't know they're like famous or songs are blowing up in countries that they don't know. Yeah. What, that guy just actually recently passed just away. Passed. Yeah, yeah, really sad. Great movie, by the way. Also, let's talk about Summerland for a moment. Is there plans to bring that back? I think so, yeah. You, we'll look at it. I mean, there's bands I'd like to get that have never been on it, you know, that I think are... Uh, at the right size. I mean, some bands are too big, some bands are too small, but there's a few bands on there. I'd like to do something different um, if we can get get them. So right now I'm just concentrating. I'm in the middle of a tour right now, and we're having a great time, and I just want to get done with this, get home, and um, then start thinking about next year. We should talk about the gig tonight and also the new record, uh, Live at the Whiskey, by the way. So is it hard to put together a set list with so many great songs? Your catalog is incredible. I was spending some time with it before we did this. So many great songs. It's probably a little challenging with so many great songs. Everybody wants to hear the hits. Well, um, I, I always play the hits. I, play the hits. I, I get very frustrated with bands who don't play their yeah, hits. Yeah, I have my own stories about playing in my own bands when I work with artists that don't want to play the hits. And I'm yeah. just like, but you, yeah. You, you have opinions about it too. I do. I, I mean, don't. I, I, that's that's why people are there, man. Yeah. You know, and to me, those hits have been good friends that changed my life in a, in a better way. No question. And so I look at it like that. But we, we play the hits, we play fan favorites, and then um, people can hit us up on social media, even for the show tonight um, at the Gramercy. If you got requests and we know how to play it, we'll play it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the record. It was the first time in your career that you ever played the whiskey, which is strange because you're almost like an L.A. band, but uh, from um, Portland. But I kind of associate you with, especially having Santa Monica as one of your biggest songs. I know so. a lot of people do that <laughs> yeah. we're an L.A. band. Well, I I grew up in L.A. and you know all my friends played the the whiskey. I used to go see bands at the whiskey, and um, you know I've been backstage. I've gotten to fights. I've Blacked out, drunk there. I've sold drugs there. Had sex in the backstage, but never played there right. until last December first. And uh, good sounding room, by the way. It sounds good. It sounds good. You know, and they're set up for recording. They got mics everywhere. And um, we were. I booked it. It was an underplay for us, but we booked it because I wanted to play there and I wanted to end the 30th anniversary tour there. And then I get a call from a friend of mine. Uh, who used to be an A&R guy at Capitol, not mine, but an A&R guy. And he asked me if I wanted to make a, a new original record, and I'm like, absolutely not. Now, why is that, by the way? Because you haven't made a new record in like eight years or so. Why? Yeah, why? I've, I've made nine. <laughs> right. I don't, do you feel like you love it? I know you, there's a couple new songs on this yeah, record. No. but I want to do a song every year, one or two songs every year. Because you feel like people digest music differently. It's just and, fun. Right. That's not work, you know, to do a song, spend... A week doing a song and mastered, mixed and mastered, it's done. 
and do a video for it, spend a few grand on it. It's fun. Doing making an album, a whole album's gonna take a year of my time. Yeah. And I just don't feel the need to do it at this point. Mm. But he's like, Well, what about a live album? You're playing the whiskey, you wanna record a live album? I go, Yeah, that's a good idea. So I called Jim Kaufman, who's uh my guy, and uh he's a he's a friend of Matt's too. And um, you know, he 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 co produced it with me and recorded and mixed it. And we recorded it and listened to it. I wasn't even sure I was going to give it to the label, but it sounded great. So I they asked for 15 live tracks and two studio tracks. So we already had Year of the Tiger, which is a song we'd done last year. So we recorded a song that was on my solo record in 2019. And you thought that that's when... I was diagnosed. That's when I came out to the world okay. that I had MS. Sure. So that's that's that sense, yeah. disconnect there. But um, yeah, there was a song on there called uh, "Sing Away" that was more acoustic, and um, I it always sounded like an Everclear song. It needed to be done with the big guitars and the full Everclear treatment. And uh, we went in and recorded it in one day. It's fascinating because when we were growing up, you had these records. You had Cheap Trick, Live at Budokan, Frampton Comes Alive, Kiss Alive. They were pivotal records in their careers, and everyone did a live record. Bands don't really make live records anymore. So why did you find a need to kind of make one? Because ultimately, like, that was the thing to do back then. And it's a great-sounding record, by the way. You're, it's, the record is incredible, and you, the hits really come alive. The songs come alive. It's a great-sounding record. But back then, as I said, everyone was doing them, and a lot of them weren't even live. No, most <laughs> most of them weren't. Right. All the ones you just mentioned yeah. weren't. I if think you, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan might have been live I that think. was live yeah that was live but um they were tight live if you ever saw them but uh frampton yeah kiss not not live no, no. <laughs> and my favorite live albums are band a lot like the who live at leeds you know uh band any band that played the fillmore you know and that sounds like a live record yeah and i wanted this to sound like a live record and most live records are recorded when they'll take three or four shows I'll take different tracks off, right? And I just wanted to record one show. And we've got it all on video. And it's we're gonna release the video later this year. Amazing. Yeah. So warts and all, you didn't there's nothing that you fixed in the studio. No. I, I there was a couple lines that I re sang because I was off mic, you know? Yeah. So and there and there was a couple chords that I'd missed and maybe my guitar player missed. And we fixed that, but no no Pro Tooling or Auto-Tune or uh, Melodyne or whatever you call it. Not, not a lot of that. And talk to me about a couple of the new tracks on the record, the studio tracks, because as you said, you'll probably release one song a year or two songs, right? A couple songs yeah. a year, hopefully. So talk to me about a couple of the new songs on the record, too. Well, I did it originally. The, the new songs on the record are Sing Away, a song about um, teen bullying and suicide, and that's the single that's out now, and we did a video of, of it about five weeks ago and uh it came out it's really powerful and it's it's um my daughter is actually in it we needed a girl to play the girlfriend of the boy who was the protagonist and so we kept my daughter home from school one day took her in Amazing. it's cool um the other song is a song called year of the tiger that came out last year that's pretty much i th i i was talking to a friend of mine who's the singer of a big punk rock band that everybody knows He's, I'm like, what do you think of it, man? I, I think it's like a protest song. He's like, 
Dude, don't don't flatter yourself. It's not a protest song. It's a fight song, Art. You're trying to start shit. You're trying to pick a fight mm. with with the right. And that's pretty much what it was. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a great record. So pick up the record or download the record, however you listen to music. We do these really top five lists that are really fun. They go kind of viral at the end of the show, Art. So I want to get into a couple lists with you. So let me ask you first, your top five best alternative rock bands of the 90s. Okay. Starting Um, with number five. Starting with number five. I'll put this at number five. Okay. Okay. That's okay. We we can do that. I can can do do that. I can do anything I want. (laughs) Number four, I would have to say um, the Toadies. Big fan of the Toadies. And... um, Underrated, by the way. Way underrated. Yeah. Well, and so so good. Alternative bands of the '90s. I have to put this band as number two, but let me get to number three first. Uh, uh, Sonic Youth. Another um, amazing band. Number number two would be Nirvana. Yeah. And number one would be the Pixies. Amazing. Yeah. By the way, I saw the Pixies play last night on YouTube. They played at the Hollywood, Hollywood Bowl. They still Bowl. sound incredible. They're still great. They still sound incredible. Well, actually, you know, the Pixies, Nirvana, there's a connection there. It all started Absolutely. with them. So, for sure. Yeah. And because we were just talking about your live record, your favorite top five live rock albums of all time. Starting with number five. I'm going to say the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore East. Um, Humble Pie at the Fillmore East. Um, number three. Uh, Cheap Trick Budokan, uh, number two, probably Kiss Alive, the first one. And was that a studio version or is that just yeah, a live it's, uh, it's a okay. live album. Okay. Whether it really was a live album, we don't know. We know the rumors. <laughs> but number one is, uh, I was talking about it before, The Who Live at Leeds. Live at Leeds. Yeah. Incredible. And are you a foodie, by the way? I am. Okay, so I am too. And we should talk about your top five Best restaurants in LA, or it could be Santa Monica, wherever in LA that you pick. I, don't, I live in Pasadena. Now. Okay, so anywhere in California, but your top five best restaurants. Anywhere in anywhere, the world. Starting with number five. No, in California. Because uh, um, again, I think a lot of people associate you with a band, even though you're from Portland. Yeah, but the p- places I like don't last very long. They're like pop ups and they go away. But you know what? Um, I'll, I'll go to the cultural food that I grew up with. So. Number five would probably be a um, a restaurant out in Pasadena called Plate Thirty Eight. It's just a, it's a dinner house, but they're very inventive. The, the chef there is just like pretty fearless. It's pretty great. Um, number four, In and Out Burger, classic. Yeah, can't go wrong. Do you have an animal style? What style do you? Nah, I just I got I go. Classic. I go, I go classic. Okay. Yeah. No no spread. I don't like mayonnaise. <laughs> okay. Anything with mayonnaise, not a fan. By the way, um, it's weird they never opened up on the East Coast. I mean, it's such a They're working their uh, way ba- they're working their way I out. I don't here. understand it. I don't yeah. get it. But they're right. they're working their way out. Here. That grass, it could be an in and out podcast to itself. So number three. So number three would be Nobu Sushi Malibu. Yeah. If you classic. can afford it, it's yeah. it's amazing. It'll cost you five hundred bucks, but five thousand bucks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um number two. Number two is a steakhouse in Pasadena called the uh Arroyo Chop House. Everybody I take there is just blown away. It's the best steak. It's one of the best steaks in the world I've ever had. And the number one in Culver City, actually, um, yeah, well, I miss Tommy's Burger. That's that's an honorable, an honorable mention. mention yeah. Uh, yeah, but number one is Johnny's Pastrami, which has been there since 1948. I've never been there. It's on yeah. my list now, though. 
Dude, it's the best pastrami. Now, do you go to Cat Swing in New York? No, no, it's not. It's not that kind of. It's it's a California roast um, uh, pastrami sandwich. Okay. So it's on a roll. It's got an au jus. You get it with Swiss cheese, which you, of course, would never do yeah. with anything kosher, <laughs> right? But um, it's amazing the things we get excited about when we get older, right? Oh, pastrami God. and whatever. You see my eyes lighting up. <laughs> yeah. Yours, your eyes are lighting up too. What's next for <laughs> you, by the way? Obviously, the tour is in full swing now. What else is anything else we should mention that we didn't touch on? Um, no, um, we're gonna we 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 uh, toured. We did a big tour of uh, Australia in February this year. I'm going back this next February solo, you know, do a solo tour. And um, other than that, just more shows. Um, I'm a I'm a life coach. I work with people who are creatives, work in the creative industries. A lot of people who are uh, in recovery or trying to get in recovery, and um, do that. And I'm I've got a literary agent now, and I'm. Um, writing a book. I've got offers to write a book. Amazing. Yeah. I'd love to see your story come to life on the big screen. Yeah, me too. Well, this this tour runs through October 27th, which is amazing. Thanks for coming in. I might, maybe uh, you could be my life coach one day, which would be great. So <laughs> like, I feel like I might hit you up on that at some point. All right, it's been a pleasure. We have a lot of mutual friends. It's great to sit with you. We need to do this again That'd be great. at some point. Awesome. Thanks for coming in. I Thanks appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Well, that was awesome. Art from Everclear. What a great guy. What an inspiration. What a fighter. If you like the show, please make sure to rate and review the show. If you give it five stars, it's very helpful. We're on YouTube. We're everywhere. You get your shows every two weeks or so. Make sure you send us a message. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show coming up. I appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you soon.